All right, we're starting a new campaign uh, for the whole summer, really. We're breaking it up into two different segments, but we're starting a new campaign for the summer, and we're just calling this campaign Worthy. Okay, the whole campaign is centered on the topic of worship and h- how do we worship God. Um, so we're going to split it up into two different segments. This first segment, I was planning on just being outside to have like a real like clear visual illustration of what I'm talking about. Uh, but this first segment, what we're going to do is just talk about these like spontaneous forms of worship or these common grace things in creation, for example, that just draw us to worship. These things like we've, we've all experienced it where you've just like seen the ocean for the first time and you're just struck in awe and wonder, where you see the Grand Canyon, you see a mountain, you see something that just like floors you and you're drawn to worship. We've all had moments where somebody does something so kind, so loving, so good, that you're just kind of floored by it and drawn to worship. So this is what we're going to talk about in this first part of this campaign, is these spontaneous common grace things that just should draw us to worship. So throughout our week, we'll be worshipers just by our everyday moment-by-moment experiences. In the second part of the campaign, we're going to go into more formal religious forms of worship and just talk about God and how awesome God is. Talk about how good he is, what he has done for us, and to just set our eyes on him and worship because he is worthy. So we're talking about worship, this, this word that I keep saying. When we talk about worship, we use it in so many different senses. And as I'm saying this, there's likely one or two that are coming to mind for you first and foremost. So let's kind of just tease these out and name them if they're going to pop up on the screen. John, can you go to the next one? What what happens when you hit it? There we go. Okay. I don't know what that was. All right. So when we talk about worship, we use worship to just refer to like the whole church gathering, the worship service. Perhaps you thought about that this morning on your way in. This is a worship service. We use worship to just refer to the singing portion of the service where we we say, okay, now we're going into a time of worship as if everything else we had been doing wasn't worship, right? There's the different ways that we tend to use this term. And I want to clarify it. I'm not going to do the pastor thing and be like, that's not worship. All right. And I used to be that guy. And by the grace of God, I'm not anymore. All right. Language is complex. We use it to refer to different things. We just have to be aware of it. Uh, And thirdly, we use it to just refer to, like, respect or admiration for an esteemed object. So somebody who's real greedy, we can say that they worship money. Okay? My kids, they loved watching 101 Dalmatians. All right? There's this one line in there with Cruella DeVille where she says she worships furs. Right? Remember that? She comes in, she's just, like, a, a mess right, (laughs) loves her furs, and she worships her furs. It's just a strong admiration for something that she values. So we use it to refer to that. In the broadest sense of the term, worship, it, it means just ascribing worth to something, something that you value. We all worship because we all view things as, uh, as having worth or value to us. The question before us all is, what do we worship as ultimate? What is the highest? Who is the highest? Is it God or is it other things? Humans, we are all worshipers. Atheists worship. We all worship. What do we worship as ultimate? That's going to be the question before us. What do we constantly come back to with the things that we value, those moments that we cherish? Do they all get directed to God and worship to God? Or do they stop before that somewhere? If it stops before that, that's your functional God, 
it's not God. And so throughout this campaign, we're just going to keep drawing our eyes to God, saying these things are great and can inspire spontaneous worship, but we must get to God because he must be ultimate. He must be first because only he is truly worthy of our worship. So what we're going to do today is just talk about some essential components of worship. And again, I was planning on being outside, so when I heard we were coming inside, I'm like, great, I can preach longer. Because outside, you guys aren't paying attention. So, <laughs> so I'm going to, I might get rolling, we'll see. Jamie might not appreciate me by the end of today. Um, <laughs> so, so when we talk about this idea of worship, like, we use it in so many different senses, too, that we tend to like, lose the biblical sense of worship and what Scripture means when it talks about worship. The two words most often translated worship in Scripture, both in Hebrew and in English, are words that have a, a literal meaning of a posture. It's this posture of bowing down, posture of bowing your heads, a posture of kneeling, or a posture even of lying prostrate on the floor. <laughs> the idea is, in the ancient world, you do that before somebody who was greater than you. Right? We don't do that anymore before people, which is a good thing. <laughs> It's a very good thing, right? But that means that this concept is kind of foreign to our imagination. When we think of it, we only think of it in movies. You're probably thinking of an old-timey movie or something that is set in an old, ancient period, right? Where somebody lies prostrate before a king or in a different culture. And so we don't see this very often, so it's foreign to our concept of worship. Whereas in the scriptures, when they say worship, everybody knows. Like, oh, I had to do that yesterday in front of my Lord or in front of somebody who was higher than me on the social ladder. This was very familiar to them. It's not to us. And again, it's a good thing, because we should only worship God <laughs> in this sense. But we can't lose that concept of lying prostrate before somebody as God, because he alone is worthy of our praise. And so what we're going to do is talk about these essential components of worship today that we have to have before we can even really dive into this topic. And I only have three, and I'm going to say, I'm going to say heart postures, okay? And I cringe a little bit when I say that because it's really mom-bloggy. It's a little too mom-bloggy for me, all right? So if you're cringing, know that I'm cringing with you. If you like that language, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> But these three postures of the heart that we have to have towards God in order to worship. Oops, I forgot one. Acts of reverence or devotion to God. That's the way the Bible talks about it. Okay. First posture is a posture of humility. So even the Greek and Hebrew words describe that. As you bow, as you kneel, as you lie prostrate on the floor, you're expressing that the person before you is greater than you. So again, this is why it's really important that we don't do this before other humans, but only before God. We must have humility, though, in order to worship. Without humility, you can't worship. Without the sense of God is greater than me, you're not worshiping. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Matthew 23.12, For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, Jesus says this, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is consistent throughout Scripture. We, that we humble ourselves and we allow God to lift us up. We don't need to glorify ourselves. Instead, we wait for God to glorify us, to vindicate us, to lift us up, like Jesus, 
who humbled himself and in the resurrection was vindicated and glorified by our heavenly father. One of my favorite stories in scripture on this is the story of King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit of this. I'm spending most of my time on humility because I think this is the most important. This humility is a lesson to learn the easy way. (laughs) It is not a lesson to learn the hard way. Okay, God can and will humble you. He can. Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful king in the world in this day. And watch what God does to him. He has a dream, and he's terrified by the dream, and Daniel interprets the dream for him. And here's the interpretation of the dream. He says, you'll be driven away from people and will live With the wild animals, you will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Most powerful person in the world in this day. God is going to humble him by making him live like an animal. One day... Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's learn this lesson the easy way. So after this happens, a year later, it says that he's up on top of his palace just glorifying in himself, basically, for what he has created and how awesome this kingdom is. God fulfills this vision to him. And he lives like an animal for a period of time. And then when he returns, he learned his his lesson. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, remember, this is a pagan king. This is a pagan king. He wasn't called by God of the people of Israel who had the Torah, who had the law. After this experience, here's what he says. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High, I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me. God will lift you up for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. Pagan king is saying this, remember? And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So church, please, I'm begging you, learn this the easy way, not the hard way. God can and will humble you. <laughs> I came across this quote from Sharon Hottie Miller, Miller earlier this week that I just felt I had to share with you. In it, I talk, uh, she also quotes Francis Chan, who says something to the effect of, the, effect of uh, the, the way that we cure our narcissism is not by looking at ourselves, it is, it is simply by staring at God. <laughs> we all have com- elements of narcissism in us. We must stare at God. Here's what she writes. The more we focus on ourselves, the bigger we will seem. The greater a burden we become to ourselves. 
What a statement. That's worth sitting with and reflecting on in and of itself. The more you think about yourself and the more your focus and attention is drawn on yourself, the bigger your burden of yourself becomes. When we focus on God, his vast power and might, his unsearchable and unknowable ways, we realize our smallness. Now, this is the, this is the theme, the emphasis of the first half of our campaign. It's like standing on a mountain or beside the ocean. In that moment, you discover your true proportion. You feel small in comparison with the cosmos. And there is a beautiful lightness in that realization. You are tiny. You are fragile. You are not in control. The world does not rest on your shoulders. And that is good news. There's so much relief in accepting our smallness. And praising God takes us to that place. Worship reminds us of how small we are and how great God is. And it just draws our attention to him and not on to ourself, which so many of us need day by day. So that's humility. The second thing we need to have a posture of worship, this essential component of worship is unhurried time. And I say unhurried time because busyness is a function of your external environment. We all get busy from time to time. Hurry is an element of your soul. It's something that happens in you. You can be busy and not be hurried. My basketball coach would always tell us, be quick, but don't hurry. Because <laughs> there's a difference, and you can see it. You can see it when somebody's playing sports, especially. You can tell when they're hurried. They're sped up. And they're making more mistakes than they normally would. It's because something is, it's a condition of your internal life. It's not just the busyness around you. In his book, Soul Keeping, John Ortberg, he notes uh, a comment from Dallas Willard that he made to him one day. He said, hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day. He said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. <laughs> what a great quote. John Mark Comer took the last part of that quote and turned it into a book. It's a great book. <laughs> because if we are to worship in this way of like spontaneously stopping and looking at the beauty of creation or recognizing a moment, something that happens, you cannot be hurried. If you're hurried and constantly going from one thing to the next, you'll miss it. You miss it all. There's no time to pause and just reflect and say, wow, God, you are awesome. And so we have to unhurry our life, unhurry our soul. Most notably, we see this in Scripture in the practice of the Sabbath. Genesis 2, 2 through 3, we read, by the, but the seventh, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested. Okay, that word rested is the word Shabbat. Uh, it means to cease or to stop from doing, as well as to rest, depending on the context. It just means stop. <laughs> you have to stop what you are doing. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This theme is so significant in the Old Testament. It's everywhere. And I'm going to leave it to the Bible Project guys to describe that. They go into great detail on it. I've linked you to a page in the devotional. Follow it. It's incredible. It's everywhere. It's so very important. Now, whereas as New Testament Christians, I don't believe we're held to the Sabbath as a law, I think it's best practices for Christians to stop and rest. To take time and do nothing. And just be at peace. Especially in the busy culture that we find ourselves in. Where there's constantly something demanding your attention. 
There's constantly a phone right there. There's a TV right there. There's work to be done all around you. It's so vitally important for us to just stop. Came across this this week as well and in a devotional by Sky Zatani and it is just profound. Psalm 23, probably the most famous psalm and for good reason, it's so good. Psalmist says, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. We need to be able to say that. <laughs> Can we say, I lack nothing? We read this, we memorize this. We're so familiar with these words, they don't hit us the same way that they do at first. To say, I lack nothing. In a consumeristic culture, can we say that? It's a totally counterformational way of living. To say, I don't need all of that stuff. It's essential for unhurrying your soul. Because if you're constantly saying, I need, I need, I need, I need more of that, you're going to constantly be striving. You can't stop working because you have to get the next thing. In this next line, he makes me lie down in green pastures. This should not have gone over my head for all these years, but it did. Uh, I was a farm boy, and I totally missed it still. Sky Jatani noted uh, in his devotional on this, what do sheep normally do in green pastures? <laughs> they eat. <laughs> I, was, I haven't seen a lot of sheep in my day, but I've seen a lot of cows, right? They eat and eat and eat. <laughs> they are constantly grazing when they're in a green pasture like this because they're never satisfied. But in the first line, I lack nothing. So he makes us, again, following his laws, right? He makes us lie down in green pastures. While there is abundance all around us to be had, we can lie down. We can rest. What an image. Because the Lord is our shepherd. So we can be content. One of the biggest obstacles to stopping and resting and ceasing our work is this feeling that if I stop, who's going to do the work? What is going to get done? I have all these things to do. How can I stop? The Lord is your shepherd. He can make you lie down in green pastures. You can be content. You can be at peace. You don't have to constantly be striving. That is an essential component of worship, is stopping. The next is awe and wonder. Awe and wonder. Kids, a lot of y'all left, but you guys are naturally better at this. <laughs> you're, you're way better at just awe and wonder. We as adults get boring and try to figure everything out, and we lose our awe and wonder. When I think of this, I think of my son Shiloh. When he was little, he loved trains, and many of you probably remember this. The dude, we would spend days at Echo Park, and every time a train drove by, which, by the way, having a kid who's infatuated with trains was awesome to live in Burlington. Perfect, right? So we would just sit there and watch the trains drive by, and I remember his eyes. His eyes would just get big. He would just stop whatever he's doing, and he would just stare at this train driving by. He was just full of awe and wonder. It was amazing to him. And then we as adults, we grow up, and we just try to figure it out. It all becomes like boring to us, right? <laughs> we just learn the mechanics of diesel engines and how they work, and we're like, ah, oh, it's pretty simple, right? And we lose all of our awe and wonder. We lose it because we can learn how it all works. And it's good to learn how it all works. I get that. But we cannot approach God in the same way. We do need to learn and to know what God has said about himself in his word. That's vitally important. But we can't do so at the expense of mystery and awe and wonder. 
There are elements of God that we can never figure out, and we can never lose that sense of awe and wonder at who he is and how, what he has done. Psalm 8, 3 through 4, Psalmist writes, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Psalmist is looking up at the heavens and saying, Wow, <laughs> why do you care for me? Matthew 8, 27, this is after Jesus calms the storm at sea. It says, The men were amazed and asked, What kind of man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They're just full of awe and wonder at Jesus. Like, the wind obeys you. <laughs> Who are you? You are someone greater than I am. Essential component of worship. Matthew 15, 30. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking. The crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. See how awe and wonder leads to praise and worship. So we cannot lose this sense of awe and wonder. We have to be humble, knowing that God is greater than us. Band, you guys can come and get set up here. We're going to sing one more song in a moment. We have to unhurry our soul and our schedule to make time so that we can pause when these moments happen and just turn our attention onto God and stare at him in awe and wonder of who he is, what he has done, and how he has created this world. And we have to have this posture of awe and wonder. If you approach the Christian faith as just a puzzle to figure out, God as a puzzle to figure out, you can lose this sense of awe. And when you do so, you will have lost your sense of worship as well. Lord, God, I pray that your spirit would just stir these in our hearts. Lord, that you would draw us to humility. Lord, humble us. Do what it takes to humble us. That you would unhurry our souls, even when we're busy, that, Lord, we would not feel hurried. And, Lord, you would just give us this sense of awe and wonder at you, because you are so magnificent, you are so transcendent. You're beyond us, Lord. We can't even fathom your glory and your splendor. Lord, fill us with that awe and wonder of who you are and draw us to worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's take a moment, let's stand, let's worship and sing praises to our Savior.